Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, if you're like most people, you've probably got some habits you'd like to change. Maybe you want to quit smoking or eat better or check your phone less. And if you're like most people, probably tried making those changes but failed. And after failing again and again, you just gave up. We've all been there. My guest today is a psychologist who specializes in helping people make real, lasting change in their lives. His name is Sean Young, and he's the director of the UCLA Center of Digital Behavior and the author of the new book, Stick With It, a scientifically proven process for changing your life for good. Today on the show, Sean explains why most of our approaches to personal change fail in the scientifically proven process he and his team have developed to help people make lasting change. Sean shares several tactics that, when used in combination with each other, can help you finally make those changes you've long desired. We discuss why creating small wins is important in habit change and what we can learn from cults on how to effectively change ourselves. We then discuss how we can alter our environment to facilitate transformation as well as neurohacks that can shortcut the brain's hardwired instincts. At the end, Sean ties all these concepts together to provide listeners with a roadmap to finally sticking with a habit change that you've been trying to do. You're going to love this show. A lot of practical takeaways. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash make it stick. All right, Sean Young, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. You recently published a book, one of the best books I've read this year, I got to say, Stick With It, A Scientifically Proven Process for Changing Your Life for Good. That is a, that's a, that's a big promise there, man. So we're going to see if you, if you can deliver on it today. Because we were talking earlier on the show that you know changing habits, whether you want to eat better, quit smoking, start exercise, like this is something that people struggle with. You know, for for since for time immemorial, and there's like a new diet book or a new workout or a new book that promises change but doesn't deliver. I'm curious, why why is it all these ideas we have about how to change habits, traits, etc.? Why do they typically fall short usually? Yeah, thanks, and and thanks for the the kind words about the book. I mean, it's it took two years of my life to write, and and you know, 15 years of, of research. And, and so I've just put heart and soul and so much into it. So it means a lot that, that you said it's, uh, that it really resonated with you. So the, the book, you know, I started doing research in this area because there were personal and professional things going on in my own life that had me questioning why people don't stick with things. And in the book, I talk about, you know, my brother has Crohn's disease and, and was in the hospital and, and there were, I was in a band. And, and I mean, there were a lot of questions that were getting me to ask why people don't stick with things. So I started studying this scientifically. Um, and I realized that 
a lot of other people who were asking the exact same questions and, and struggling with it also. Um, and, uh, and what I noticed is that so much in this space, because we don't have the answers, there's, there's two things that happen. One is we put the blame on the person. We put the blame on the individual and we say, you know, if we can't get ourselves to go to the gym, it's because we're not motivated enough. We don't have enough discipline. Or if I work with patients, I'm a professor in, in the medical school at UCLA. And uh, if patients can't take their medication, it's because we're told they're not disciplined enough or there's something wrong with them. But that really didn't make sense to me to just put the blame on people. It also makes us feel bad about ourselves. And I found through this process of studying it, it's, it's really not the right science. You know, instead of putting the blame on the person and telling the person, you have to change who you are, which we really can't change that much of who we are. I learned it's really about just tweaking little things in our lives and changing the process of how we do it. And so this book, you know, it's, it's a scientific process that I've used. I've studied it in research. I've put it together from decades of scientific research. Um, I've applied it in my own life and in my own work and business. Um, and it's really just a, a process for, for being able to stick with things. Uh, and, and the other thing, so, so that's, that's one reason, you know, one issue is we put the blame on other people, but, but the other thing is since these solutions aren't out there, often we fall back to motivation. Um, we fall back to, to inspiration. I can talk more about that in a minute and, and unpack that. But, but generally we think, I'm going to solve the problem by reading a self-help book, or I'm going to solve the problem by going to a motivational speaker, but that's not going to last. It's a temporary feeling. And so what we really need is a process we can stick to no matter how we're feeling. Right. And that, that reliance on sort of the feeling of motivation is why people often buy another self-help book after they read one, mm-hmm. and sign up for another motivational speaker or a course or a conference, et cetera, is because they think that's going to be the cure, but it's not. Yeah, exactly. You, I mean, you mentioned... Um, before when we were chatting, you're talking, you know, every day there's a different diet book. There's a different motivational book. I mean, that stuff's out there because people really hurt. You know, it's when you're, when we're trying to change something and we can't change it, people really suffer. I mean, I see this with patients. I see it with, with the people that we work with. And so if there's something out there that, will make us feel good, at least temporarily, and make us feel like we can change, people want to get that. And unfortunately, that's that's been the books and that's been the the solution, just temporarily make people feel better, but it doesn't last. And, and the reality is there is a science out there that, that we can follow that will get us to stick with things. And so that's why I wrote this book. Yeah. And another approach I see a lot of those type of books or things try to use to help change is giving people information, mm-hmm. right? Like here's, here's all these things you, you need to do to, you know, get on a program or here's why you need to quit smoking. Like I think everyone who wants to quit smoking knows why they should quit smoking, but that information is not helping them change. Yeah. That's one of, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing the biggest, you know, misinformation that we have about behavior change, that if you just, just educate people more and then they'll change. And, and it's not, you know, these aren't uneducated people even who are saying this. I'll work with doctors who will say, my patients aren't taking their medication. 
they are just not educated enough about it. And until they start reading more about why they need to take their medication, I don't want to work with them anymore. And it's, it's, we've learned, you know, decades of, of psychology research. We've learned, like you said, people know they shouldn't smoke, but they still smoke. There's, in a lot of cases, people don't, they aren't educated enough and their education helps. But in so many cases, people know what they should and shouldn't be doing. But there's a lot of underlying psychology and other things in there. Education is not the only thing. And it's, and it's often used as just the fallback is, well, if the person's not doing it, they're not educated enough or they're dumb. And that's just not true. Well, let's talk a bit about, you mentioned a little bit about your background of where this process came from. You're currently the director of the UCLA, UCLA Center of Digital Behavior and the UC Institute of Prediction Technology. How is your work there or in even your research before then? I mean, what, what have you done with that research or, that, or this process you developed to help people in these capacities? Yeah, I so my background, I'm a social and behavioral psychologist. Did uh went to graduate school in that. I was I started off I I played in bands. I was uh, actually studied music and was in, you know, punk funk bands and playing music because I saw growing up that the musicians I looked up to really influenced, you know, had a big influence on the world. And that's something that I've always wanted. So I started studying psychology, just kind of fell into it actually to go to grad school, but, but found that psychology and behavior change was a way of really connecting with a lot of people and, and leaving a mark on the world, hopefully. And so that was my goal and why I ended up, rather than just going into psychology theory, I went off to UCLA in the medical school where I'm a, I'm a medical school professor. Like you said, I lead two organizations. One's the Center for Digital Behavior and the other is the Institute for Prediction Technology. And what we do there, we look at behavior and and we it's since we're in the medical school most of it's focused on improving people's health broadly so we'll work a lot on HIV trying to get people tested for HIV we work in prescription drug abuse we I work with UCLA patients who have chronic pain trying to get them less reliant on their opioids so that they're not addicted or or risk for overdose we'll work with cyberbullying among youth, you know, all kinds of different broad public health problems, crime and, and politics. And, and you know, what, what we'll do is incorporate technologies and, and how can we use technologies and, and other methods of behavior change to change people's behavior. So, so we've come up with, you know, study after study that incorporates insights in psychology. And I describe a lot of those in the book. One thing that we've done, we created an online community called the the HOPE Intervention, which stands for Harnessing Online Peer Education. It's like a peer-driven um, community that we find time and again in multiple studies gets people just in you know a short period of time, just 12 weeks, we can get people to change their behavior and, and make it last. And that's something I talk a lot about that and how to build, how, to, how do you create an organic community for behavior change. And, and that's the focus of uh, one of the chapters of the book. Yeah, I love that. Because oftentimes when people think about personal change, they're thinking about themselves typically. But as you point out the book, like this has you know public policy ramifications. This costs taxpayers lots of money trying to change behaviors of 
you know, large amounts of people who are costing taxpayers lots of money to treat like opioid addiction or HIV, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought it was really interesting how you're trying to apply these principles, not just on a micro level, but also, you know, looking at it at a macro level. Yeah, that's, I mean, as a, as an academic, as a public health person, as why I got into this was, I mean, every day I wake up and I think about what are problems either in the world or just locally down the street, and I want to try to solve them. And that's what, that's uh, honestly, I mean, that's what gets me excited every day when I wake up to try to feel like I'm helping to solve some problems and, and bring some good in the world. And, and, you know, I also, I've found that the same methods that I've learned through trying to solve these social problems can also be applied in my own life. I'm definitely doing that in applying the science. I do consulting work and apply it with business. I've always been involved, you know, for a long time, I've been involved with startups, either helping to found companies or advise companies and the same principles apply there. It's really the science of behavior change is just applies everywhere and the root of everything. Right. All right. So we know that, you know, just blaming the person doesn't work or relying solely on discipline or willpower. Uh, motivation isn't going to cause lasting change and information is not going to cause lasting change. So what is this framework that you've developed through your years of research that you found actually produces lasting change in individuals? So what I found is that there's behaviors aren't all the same. We There are different types of behaviors and we've got to understand the different types of behaviors. There's three of them, um, what I call A, B, and C behaviors. Once we know those three different types of behaviors, there's a set of tools that we can use. And, you know, just like, just like you might use a, a wrench for something, you might use a screwdriver or something else. Um, there's of those set of toolkit, of that toolkit and the set of tools, we use some of them for changing A behaviors, others for B and others for C. And, um, and I think that's, that's been a limitation in the past. You know, a lot of people have just lumped behaviors into this one big category, but they're actually different types of behaviors. Um, and, it, you know, it reminds me of, I remember reading about <laughs> there's, there's a indigenous people in, in Sweden in Finland and Norway and in Scandinavia. And I remember reading the, these people, there's, there's like 300 different words related to snow um, in, in their language. And for us, we just, we have behavior or we have habit and that's it. And people consider habit to be a just repetitive behavior, but to psychologists, habit has a very specific definition. And that's important because the way you change habits is different than you change other types of behaviors. Gotcha. So let's talk about some of these approaches for these different types of these ABC behaviors. And you start off talking about, you have like what do you, I think it's an acronym, science, right? The science framework. And uh, the, that S in science stands for step ladders. What's a step ladder and why is it an effective tool and when would you use that tool? Step ladders is the idea that we got to do things in small steps, incremental steps. We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, plan to do something that we're not going to be able to achieve then we'll fail at it. Um, but 
when I say this, this obviously, this is intuitive. People will say, okay, sure, I, I know that I'm supposed to do this in small steps. And a lot of us, most of us do, but we still plan steps that are way too big. So the question is, how do you get people to plan smaller steps? I was, I ran into to uh, someone, uh, I was at the market and I ran into to someone, he had run cross country in high school uh, so he's a runner and he had a good training, but he hadn't run since then. It had been, you know, 15 years since then. And he decides, I'm going to go run a marathon. And since I knew how to run in cross country, I can just, I can go nail this. I'm going to make this marathon. I'm going to finish it. I don't even need to train for it. And um, he actually did really well. He got to mile 19, but then he just collapsed. He fell down and he, he did, couldn't finish the marathon. And he told me, you know what, I'm, couldn't finish this one and I'm probably never running another marathon again after that experience. And it really resonated with me because it's, I mean, I know I couldn't run a marathon without doing a lot of training for it. And, and I think that that's something that the marathon example, I think probably a lot of people can relate to, but we all do things like that in our own life. We may plan a new year's resolution and say, you know, last year I didn't really exercise much, but this year, I'm going to go to the gym every day, or I'm going to go for a run every day for 30 or 45 minutes a day. Um, and you'll see the gyms pack up for the first week or two because people are motivated to do it. But then, then they they stop and they stop doing it. And the the problem is they planned a goal, or actually what I call a dream. They planned something that was way too difficult for them to obtain and it was too big of a step. So the question is how do you figure out what's the right size step when when all of us, you know, it makes sense to plan things that are small and incremental. So in the book I created a figure which I call steps, goals and dreams and it breaks up things based on how long it takes to achieve them. So if we're planning something that takes more than three months to do. Like for me, I can't just go run a marathon right now. It's going to take me a few months of training. That's not a step. That's not a small thing. It's what I call a dream. And then a goal is kind of medium term. That's It takes about a month to three months to achieve. And a step is something that takes less than, less than uh, a week to do. So a day or two. So like go get some running shoes if I've never had those or just go walk if I have no experience running. That's a step and we've got to gradually build up. So this figure will teach us how to plan steps that are the right size for us to stick with it and not fail. Right. So get as discreet as you can. Like a lot of people, like, yeah, they don't go small enough on this. If they try, they, yeah, like you said, people understand it intuitively, but they don't go small enough with the steps. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So this, this helps because, I mean, it's tough with words. We understand the idea of small, but what does that actually mean quantifiably? How do you actually, you know, apply that into your life? So this chart helps people actually have a recipe for what is small. Yeah. And I've even heard like, you know, one habit that, or yeah, habit that someone wants to develop is like flossing your teeth, you know, like, so they don't get the, the tisk tisk from the dental hygienist when they check your mm -hmm. gum pockets. I hate that anyways. Um, but like they said, like, instead of just saying, I'm going to floss my teeth every night, you'd say, well, just start off like floss one tooth, right? Like get, just get that going, like make it that small because oftentimes you think, oh man, floss all my teeth. That's going to take forever. But if you can just get one, 
like that can sort of snowball until where you're getting to do all of them. Yeah. Or even, even, I mean, if you don't floss at all, just first buy some floss, second, put it next to your toothbrush so that whenever you brush your teeth, you're going to see it and it will remind you like even that just, even if you're not actually flossing, just seeing your floss next to your toothbrush, every time you grab your toothbrush um, and like tape it to your toothbrush even so that it's, you can't, you can't not see your floss, you know, things like that. They're intuitive, actionable steps, but they come from this larger science. And are, is there a type of behavior that the, the step laddering works best for like the ABC behavior? Yeah. 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 Great question. So, so we can, we can get, get into, so step ladders works best for C behaviors. Um, so a behaviors are, are, uh, automatic behaviors. These are things that happen unconsciously. We're not even aware of them. Um, B behaviors are, are, uh, behavior, they're burning behaviors, behaviors where we're aware that we're doing them. Um, but, uh, but we feel like we can't stop and C behaviors are common behaviors. They're more due to motivation. Um, so an A behavior example of an A behavior is like, um, I'm forgetting to stand up straight. I'm forgetting to, to keep good posture or, you know, picking my nose without even realizing it. That would be an A behavior. It's unconscious. Um, hopefully B behavior is a burning behavior. Um, an example of that is, wake up in the morning and I got to check email or I got to check my phone to see what's going on. I, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm grabbing it, but I feel like I just got to do this. Um, addictions are often B behaviors and C behaviors are, are, you know, things like, um, going to exercise, wanting to exercise where I know I should go for a run right now. I'm aware of it, but I've got work to do, or my buddies called me up and said, let's go grab some food or a drink. Other things get in the way and we just decide not to do it. So step ladders is works best for addressing C behaviors, common behaviors, motivational things, because, because it's the idea, like we said, of doing things in small steps. So if we take, if we take the exercise example, we know we want to exercise, we can put put some running shoes next to the door or just put running shoes on right now. That'll be a a small step to get me to go for a run or do something. It's not going to work as well for A and B behaviors. Like if you want to, let's say I interrupt all the time and I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. You can't, you can't incrementally stop interrupting. I can't say I'm going to only interrupt you part of the time, or I'm going to, I'm going to, stop myself from interrupting or I'm going to take certain steps to not interrupt as much. It just doesn't even make sense because I'm not aware that I'm interrupting. First thing that we have to do is be aware of what we're doing. And then you can use step ladders to, to gradually address that. Gotcha. So the, the C in that science framework stands for community. And I gotta say, this is what I'm, I thought this is the most fascinating chapter about community and it's important in change. Cause basically you're taking like lessons from cults and figuring out how we can harness the power of what cults do to promote, I guess, positive social change. So what is it about, what, what, what have cults figured out that help people make lasting change in their lives that we can apply in our own lives? Yeah. Cults are so interesting. I think, you know, whether it's, it doesn't have to be terrorist cults or doesn't have to be 
you know, cults are bad things, but um, even like Star Wars cults or cult movies or cult classics, you know, um, I love the movie Super Bad, and there's a cult, you know, cult following around that. So, so what is it about cults? I mean, they they're able to get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. In the in the opening chapter, I talk about a woman who she's a smart woman, she's really educated, and um, and she somehow finds herself just like burning burning her old thing. She finds herself where she's not seeing her family and people from her old life. And she's in like a paramilitary organization, a, a full on cult um, that's, that's looking to do bad things. And that's endorsing um, and supporting other cults that have had mass suicides. So how did she even get there? And, and the, the science behind that and how cults work, it's, it can be applied for social good too. And, and so that's, that's what I unpack in there, um, that we want to be, we want to be different from other people. And we think we're different from other people. And we think, um, you know, if, if other people are, are wearing certain clothes, if they're talking in a certain way that we can be different, but we're actually really influenced by other people. And that's cults are good at leveraging that force, that, that science. Um, but we can, it, that tool of community is just a tool. So it can be used for good or bad things. And in the book, I try to show people how they can hopefully use it for good things. Right. And uh, that's interesting because a lot of people, when they think about changing or improving themselves, they think it's a solo affair and that's probably why one of the reasons why a lot of people fail at those changes, because as you say, the, the power of community is 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 amazing because it you have this group that reinforces positive change. They'll hold you accountable to things you shouldn't be doing. Um, so you kind of leverage some of that I don't know primordial shame that we feel when we don't you know conform, even though we think we're a bunch of nonconformists. Like it still feels feels bad to be rejected or kind of looked down upon in a group, but that can all be used for positive, positive, uh, positive change in your life. Absolutely. And, and I think community is the one that's most powerful in the research that I do at UCLA. We, like I mentioned this, this hope community, this online community, I mean, we built this and we uh, take the case of HIV. We've got, we recruited African-American and Latino gay men to uh, to online community. We recruited them because they're at high risk for HIV. And we wanted to see, could we get them to get an HIV test? They didn't want to get an HIV test necessarily. I mean, who, who, who wants to get an HIV test? But they, we recruited them into this community saying, complete a survey and we'll, you know, we'll give you a little bit of money to take this quick survey join our online community. And then once you join it, you can drop out. You don't have to be in it anymore. And you've already gotten paid. So you're, you're done with what you need to do for the study. And then, then it was up to us to make the community engaging enough so that they wouldn't want to leave and that they'd stay in it. So that's what we did. We built this community as a 12 week online community. And we found, you know, over time, we were able to get these men who didn't want to get an HIV test to actually get tested and to care about getting tested and care about changing their health. And it, I mean, just 12 weeks, 
to do it. And we found that these changes last over time. You know, the, the first one that I did of these was like seven years ago and it's still on its own. It's still working. People are still using it on their own. And we've built these communities in a bunch of different areas, not just HIV, but like I said, for opioid abuse, for general health and well-being, for for all different, all you know, drug use, all different kinds of areas. So community is really powerful in getting people to do things, even if they don't care to do it um, themselves initially. Is it just a matter of like just joining a running club or, you know, a fitness class or joining AA or is there something about the way the community is organized that allows for that change to happen? Because I've, I've seen lots of people get together, try to sort of sort these, start these self-improvement groups and they just don't go anywhere. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, so most, uh, a lot of social media, they've tried a lot of social media studies or, or community studies and actually about, about only 30% of people actually stay in and about 70% of people just drop out. We found in our studies that after 12 weeks, we had 94% of people were still actively involved. A year and a half later, over 84% of people were still involved. And and we haven't checked since, but I mean, I see the activity going on like three, four, five, seven years later. So so what is it? I mean, there's a, there's a special science about how we did it. And it involves having peer role models be involved. So we we recruit role models in a certain area, like if it's prescription drug abuse, we recruit people who were suffering from prescription drug abuse, but have been able to overcome it and who are respected peer role models. And we then train them. We bring them in to, our, to UCLA, to our institute, train them on the science of how do you reach out to strangers, people who don't even know you, and how do you connect with them and get them to trust you and ultimately follow your way of doing things? And it's that science. That's, that's the way to, to build community. Gotcha. So you gotta, you gotta spike it. Yeah, 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 exactly. You spike it. And there's, uh, you know, for art of manliness here. So in the, in the chapter, I talk about, um, two, two different beers. So I'll, I'll bring this up in case, uh, in case people would like the So, so you know the answer to this from from having read it, Brett, but it's the question I ask is, who do you think sold more beer about a year and a half ago? Was it Sam Adams or Dos Equis? And when I ask people this question, almost everyone says Dos Equis. And the reason why they say Dos Equis is just the most interesting man in the world ads. Um, they're hilarious ads. Everyone talks about him or was talking about him. And it just got so much buzz, so much word of mouth that it seems obvious that that's going to lead to more people buying Dos Equis beer and they'll continue buying that beer. But if you go and look at their Facebook pages, you'll find something, you'll, you'll see, okay, the, on the Dos Equis page, there's a few million fans that they have. There are a ton of fans. Whereas in the Sam Adams page, you've only got about a million. So still makes sense. People like Dos Equis. But then if you look at the actual conversations, those are different conversations. So in the Dos Equis page, there's like a picture of the El Senor guy. Um, he's wrestling with a tiger or something, or he's scoring a touchdown. And people are talking about it, and they're, they're talking about making other jokes of their own, or they may even be making fun of the beer. Like there was one of someone saying, you know, I, I don't... Uh, 
I don't always drink alcohol, but if there's nothing else around and I can't find anything else, then I'll drink Dos Equis. Uh, or, you know, they're, they're just kind of ripping on the, the beer, but they're, they're making these jokes, but they're talking about it. Whereas in Sam Adams, what they're talking about is I live in Canada and we don't have the new type of Sam's. We just got them and I just stockpiled them to invite all my friends over or when I go to the US, I pick up extra ones to bring them back. And so people are, even though it's a smaller following, they're talking about the beer and they're talking about how much they love it. And that's where community really matters. So it's not about, oftentimes we think just marketing, advertising will get people to change or information, like we said earlier, will get people to change. That's not it. It's about having a strong community is what gets people to, to keep on um, doing something. And that's why Sam Adams sold more beer than Dos Equis. Yeah, I love that example. The other example, when I read that, it made me think of uh, Burger King's chicken fries. <laughs> they, had, they had some really okay. funny commercials a couple years ago, and, but I never like I never had the desire to buy chicken fries. I mean, yeah. I, I watched the videos, chuckled, but yeah, didn't buy any chicken fries. So, anyways, all right. So the 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 next I in science framework I thought was really interesting because it seems so like obvious that it's trite, but when you think about it, it's like, no, actually that's a really important point. And that is important. Like the, the change you're trying to make has to be important to you. And I think people understand on an intuitive level, like, of course, like it's, this thing's important to me, like, you know, losing weight so I can reduce my blood pressure. That's important. Um, quitting smoking. So I don't get cancer. That's important, but it's oftentimes really not that important to a person because they're not doing it. Um, so the, the trick is, I wonder, what's the, here's the rub. Like, how do you make something you know should be important in your life, whether it's quitting smoking or saving for retirement, actually important in your life? Yeah, the, there's a concept. So there's a book, the, the Lean Startup, based on this Lean Startup methodology of learning, learning your customer. You can't just build a product and expect that people will start using the product. You can't just... Uh, start a podcast and expect people are going to come and listen. You know, you built up this podcast probably from talking to, you know, from talking to a lot of people, figuring out what resonates with them and, and knowing your customer and knowing what they need. Well, the same kind of approach applies in behavior change and it, you know, whether for products or for our own behavior, if we want to be able to change something either in ourselves or in others, getting other people to listen to a podcast or buy a product, it's got to be something that's important to them or important to us if we're changing. So, so how do you, how do you figure that out? You know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty simple concept of people should be motivated and, and to keep doing it, but people have different motivations. So in the, in the chapter I talked about, and I give a, a short list of things, you know, money is often off, um, obviously important to people as an incentive. Health is important for a lot of people. Social approval is important for a lot of people. Different things are important to different people. And so really knowing what, knowing yourself enough, or if you're trying to change others, like get a, a family member to be healthy or knowing them enough and knowing what is it that motivates them. And, and in the chapter, we talk about that. But I think what's what I think is interesting is that, it, like you said, it's pretty intuitive that if people are motivated to do something, they'll do it. 
But we often think that if you're not motivated to do something, there's no way you'll do it. And what we've learned is that important is just one of these seven tools or forces, but there's six others. And so even if I don't care about changing something, like in the HIV testing example I gave, even if I don't want to get an HIV test, doesn't mean I'm not going to get it because these other forces, if we use these other tools, we can still get ourselves or others to do things, even if we don't have the motivation, even if the inspiration's gone away. And I think that's what's really exciting that it doesn't, we often think, and that's, that's why people go to these self-help seminars or motivational talks, because they think I've got to have that motivation to change. Otherwise I'm not going to do it. Fortunately, and actually science shows, no, you don't have to be motivated all the time. And you're probably not going to be motivated all the time. As long as you use these other tools, you can still change behavior. And once you are changing behavior, it'll actually get you more motivated. So you don't have to necessarily start with motivation. Motivation and inspiration can come after you've already changed your behavior. Yeah, we'll talk about a little bit with the neurohacks section. But another chapter I thought was uh, really had a lot of profound insights was the idea that the change itself has to be easy or we, we should make it easy for ourselves, for ourselves to make that change. Because as you talk about in the book, humans are pretty lazy, right? Like, and it makes sense. Like it's efficient, right? We just want to go with the flow. We want to put things on autopilot so we don't have to think about them and waste energy or resources about on those things. And you mentioned a few ways that we can make things easy for ourselves with the step laddering, with the floss, like, you know, buy dental floss and keep it by your toothbrush. Like that, I guess in that way, you're, you're changing the environment to make the change stick. Is that what you're doing there? So that makes it easy because when, because you're changing your environment and therefore you're, you're, you're relying less on willpower and just relying more on your natural inclination to be lazy. And you're like, well, it's already there. So I might as well do it. There's a the story that I tell about uh, there's a grocery store chain that was not doing well. And uh, so the, the person who was running it, he mortgaged his house and just put everything on the line to try to save it. But he was competing against 7-Eleven, which had just started in other stores, which were offering so many different types of products for people. They could get anything that they wanted in all hours of the day. And so the guy... Joe Columby, he takes off and he goes to the Caribbean. And in the Caribbean, he decides, I'm just going to relax and and have a chill vacation, listen to Calypso music and sit and drink cocktails. And he realizes it's really easy to to be on vacation here. What if I take some of this back to my grocery store and make it easy for people to keep shopping? And so instead of offering a ton of products for people to buy instead of having 10 different types of mayonnaise to choose from or 13 types of breads, like, you know, most stores, he says, I'm just going to have one main product for each of them. I'm going to have, you know, one store brand bread. I'm going to have, you know, one store brand of type of chips. And that did it. it. That store ultimately became Trader Joe's, became a huge lasting success. And it's because He made it easy for people to shop. They didn't have to sit there and figure out which type of tortilla chips do I want of these 15 types. You know, it's just, it makes it pretty clear and pretty easy. Yeah. And I'm curious with your work in helping people make change in their lives, like how much does their environment hinder them making those changes? Because their environment sort of guides their behavior, 
right? If you're just hanging around a bunch of opioid addicts, like that's probably what you'll end up doing. It's like, what do you do for those individuals who are in an environment that's not conducive to lasting change? Is it you have to completely get out of there or do you have to rely on some of these other tools we've been talking about? Yeah, that we've we have the ability we have the ability to make change by changing our environment that's that's uh, it gets into almost like a larger conversation about free will and choice and stuff i mean i i believe in the research has spoken to me and said once we're in a certain environment it's really difficult for us to change but we do have the ability to change our environment and once we do that that can allow us to change our behavior. So that's why I call it forces like this, because there's constantly these forces acting on us, but we have the ability to change our forces that are acting on us. So give an example. I used to to go to the gym on campus at UCLA, and I was pretty good about it. And then I moved offices to a little bit off campus, about a mile down the road, and I didn't go to the gym as much. I wasn't exercising as much. It wasn't because I wasn't motivated, wasn't because, you know, my inspiration to exercise had changed or anything like that. It just was not easy for me anymore to walk the mile up the street or to, you know, I couldn't drive. I was, it just took 30, 45 minutes for me to now be able to just arrive at the gym. So what I did is I switched gyms and I, I chose a gym. So first I I bring my gym bag with me to work every day and I when I leave work, I've got my gym bag on me. And my um, as I'm walking on the way to the parking lot to my car, I pass the gym where I signed up for. So now I feel like I can't walk by this gym and pass it on the way to the car because I'll feel guilty. I'll feel like I should be doing this. And it's just too easy to go to the gym. It's too I it's almost more difficult for me to not go than to go. And that's what gets me to go. So changing my environment by, and we can all do this in the case of if we want to exercise, if it's a gym that we go to, pick one that's walking distance from our home or work. Don't pick one that's 15 minute drive. We're not going to be doing it. If there's, if we want to read more books, get the book and put it next to your bed so that it's easy to do. Just little, little tweaks like that where we change our environment make us more likely to be able to stick with things. And it could also mean something more drastic, like dumping all your friends that are bringing you down, who are encouraging opioid use or whatever. Yep, yep. And that's, we talk about that in, um, there's a guy named Charlie, a really, um, really nice guy who had a digital addiction and he was able to overcome his digital addiction. And that was one of the main, um, the main parts of it, you know, just getting, getting some time away. She said, we'll get into this with neurohacks, getting some time away and knowing that he's capable of being away from his digital devices, but also not being around the people who are gaming anymore and not being around people who are reinforcing that behavior for him to be using his digital devices. So you mentioned earlier that, okay, the importance, the idea of motivation, it can work. I mean, it's sort of like a, it's a tool. It's not the one, it's not going to, it's not a silver bullet, but uh, one tool that works in a lot of cases for change is this idea of neurohacks. What are those and how can they help in the change process? Neurohacks are quick mental shortcuts that we can do to change our brain and be able to do things that we were never able to do before. So I'm sitting in front of my computer right now and if a 
program crashes, I can hit control alt delete and reset it. And now the, the program's reset. Well, we have the ability to do that with our brain. We can get ourselves, it doesn't matter how many times we've failed at something, we can reset our brain so that we have a fresh restart and we're now able to do things we've never done before. And that's what I call a neurohack. And, and with, with neurohacks, you know, there's a, there's a story that I, I tell of a, a guy named Mauricio who did a, a quick neurohack from just changing his password, something as small as changing his password. He was able to get himself to, to get out of a, a funk he was in from a recent divorce and to quit smoking overnight. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, you, like he, he, I think he changed his password to forgive her or something like that. Talking about forgiving his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's the idea. I mean, what you're you're tapping into is this idea that it's the mind, the 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 body doesn't follow the mind. The mind follows the body. Or so this is like embodied cognition, right? That how we behave or things we do that that affects how we feel or even you know yeah it can even affect how we change things i think this neurohacks is i think the most counterintuitive or the most going against the grain of conventional wisdom of all the forces you know a lot of them are are pretty they they make sense intuitive we talked about step ladders we know we should do things in small steps important we people should be motivated it makes sense but but most of us are taught that if you want to change something and you want to be different in, in your life or in the world, it starts in your brain. It starts by telling yourself, I can do this. If I want to get myself to learn a new instrument, then we're taught visualize myself playing and tell myself, I'm going to learn this instrument and I can do it. But what the science has showed is that those feelings or things that we, we tell ourselves it doesn't last. We need, first, we need to start with behavior and we need to teach ourselves, teach our brain that we can actually do it. We can't have our brain convince our body to do something. We need our body to teach our brain, hey, I already did that. I can totally keep doing this. This is not a problem. This is, I may have thought that I wasn't capable of doing it, but I already did it. Um, I mean, I took, I took uh, my daughter swimming yesterday and she's two and a half and she's been afraid of, of the water. And I, I really want to teach her to swim. I grew up along the beach and was, was at the beach all the time. And I took her in the pool. She'd been afraid of the ocean, but, um, but I put one of those swim vests on her and was able to, I started off holding both her hands and, and showing her how she could stay afloat. Then I removed one hand, then I removed the other hand and she realized she didn't need me. She didn't need to hold on to me. She had been, she had been, you know, in her mind thinking there's no way she could swim. It's just not capable. She's too scared of it. But within 15 minutes of this, she now realizes I'm capable of swimming. I can do this. And she's now super excited, you know, let's go out and swim. Let, you know, today, come on, let's go swim. Let's go swim. It, that's a neurohack. It just changes how we think of ourselves because it starts with behavior. Right. So even if you don't feel like getting up and exercising, if you don't feel like flossing or whatever, just like make an appointment and just do it. Treat it like a job pretty much in the beginning. And then the process of doing will basically, you'll, you'll start to feel like doing it because like what's happening is you're changing your identity, right? You're, once you see yourself as a, you're, you're, you, once you see that you're running on a regular basis, you start thinking, well, I'm a runner. 
And because I'm a runner, I, what I do is I run. So I feel like running today because that's that's who I am. You don't want to break that uh, identity you developed yourself by doing the thing because you didn't feel like it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems or a disservice in behavior change is all this self-help and motivational stuff that says we have to be inspired to change. So if you want to exercise, look at Richard Simmons, look how much he loves exercising. He just runs around and and wants to talk about exercise all the time. And so if we want to exercise, we have to be like that. And I think it's just kind of a a downer to us because I mean, I exercise I exercise like four, five, six times a week. And most of those days, I probably don't, there's at least some portion of the day where I don't feel like doing it, but I get myself to do it. And then I end up feeling good and I'm glad I do it and it's healthy for me. And I think one of the problems that we have is that we think we have to be motivated in order to do things, but, but it's really oftentimes about just doing that first step getting ourselves to do it. And then the mind will kick in and say, I'm glad I took that first step. I'm not turning around. I'm going to keep on doing this. And and that's what we need. And, and going back to the different behaviors, automatic, burning, and common, where does the neuro hacks, how does that, which one does that help the most or what tool would be best for those? So neuro hacks, neuro hacks is one that actually, you know, helps all of them, but it's especially important for the, the B and C behaviors. So for B behaviors, which are often addictions, people can, they've failed many times at something, you know, like the example of, of uh, digital addiction or, you know, any kind of addiction, people feel like I'm just stuck to a life of always having this endless cycle of not being able to break free and I'm I'm got to be gaming all the time or whatever it is you know looking at porn videos or or drug use whatever it is but once they see that they're capable of not doing that for a portion of time it lets them know I'm maybe you know maybe I'm not the person that I thought I was and I am am capable of doing this so it's no hacks is really important for you know, especially B behaviors. Well, Sean, this has been a great conversation. We still didn't get to captivate, captivating and, and ingraining habits. So we'll let our readers go get the book so they can learn about that because that was really great. But I think, yeah, the big takeaway I got from this book, what I loved about it was that there's no silver bullet for lasting change, right? Like you have to, you have, you have to have a whole like quiver full of arrows and, and apply the right arrow for the right behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's, a mistake that we think that behavior is just all lumped together and it's it's one thing. We think that motivation or willpower or something like that will be all that we need to change behavior. We think that if we change our habits, which are a behaviors, unconscious behaviors, that that'll allow us to change all types of behaviors. But but behaviors are different. There are different forces that are acting on us all the time to be who we are and act the way we are. And we need to be aware of those forces, and then we can use the right forces to help us change. So we've got, like you said, we've got you know a bunch of arrows that we can use for different things. And the book hopefully sets up a framework for when to use which ones and, and how to use it. And, and hopefully it also leaves people with, um, you know, don't rely on having to feel like you're inspired all the time because inspiration is just a temporary thing. If we first change our behavior, 
we can get inspired to do things by by seeing the change that we have through neurohacks. I'll the, I'll leave a, with a story. <laughs> my you know I mentioned my my daughter. I so I grew up in in Orange County where I was it was very relaxed lifestyle in in Newport where I grew up. And I'm I love that relaxed feel of playing music, of of liking reggae music, things like that. But but as I got older and I went to grad school and working in medicine and doing all these things, life has gotten pretty crazy. It's just there's so much going on. It's pretty high speed, fast paced, and I can get sucked into things where I'm nonstop working. And so I wanted to change my own life and apply these kinds of things to give myself a break sometimes and and go back. I don't want to forget who I was and how I grew up. I'm still that same person of of wanting to be able to relax and and so you know rather than so what I did is first with making it easy. I I made it so that on Fridays Saturdays I put my ukulele next to the bed. So I wake up and and I pick up my ukulele and I play that for for my daughter, I play her some songs on ukulele and it's like ukulele just sounds like the beach. So it's relaxed. I taught her, even though I was in punk funk bands and I, you know, played Yeah, I played punk. I love rock music, all different types of music. I taught her jazz, reggae, and classical music. And now when I ask her what kind of music she wants to listen to, she's picking one of those three types of music. She's like, play reggae music. So when she, when you've got someone asking to put on reggae music all the time, it's pretty hard to not get yourself in that mindset of let me just sit down and have a drink or relax. And so things like that and making that a routine of every weekend and, and nighttime of playing music to her, things like that is how I've been able to apply these forces in my own life, change my own life around and make sure to have a good work-life balance. I love that. Well, Sean, is there some place where people can go to learn more about the book? Yeah, absolutely. So website is seanyoungphd.com. Same thing, Twitter, Twitter handle, seanyoungphd. Books available on Amazon, Barnes Noble. Um, support your your local independent bookstores and and definitely, you know, get a hold of me. I love talking with people, meeting new people and and got into this to to try to uh, connect and help people. So if I can share anything else, um, hit me up and, and would love to chat more. All right, Sean Young, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Brett. My guest today was Sean Young. He's the author of the book, Make It Stick. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. To find out more information about Michael's work, go to seanyoungphd.com. Also check out our show notes, aom.is slash make it stick. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, if you got something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. Thanks to everyone who has given us reviews. We really do appreciate it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.